to make sure I'm on the air. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Good to see you. Glad you're here. Um, so Elvin left me some music, so I guess I'm supposed to sing this, right? Yeah, when donkeys fly, that's how that works. <laughs> Y'all would be running for the cars. Wouldn't take long. Well, let's pray. We'll get started, all right? Father, we're grateful for another chance to get together with our family, the family that um, you've given to each of us in one another, all because of Jesus Christ. And what a great privilege that is for us. And so, as we come together tonight, Lord, I know that um, there are concerns that some of us have, maybe some concerns that we share together, but a lot of different lives represented here, and so every little piece of that uh, comes in with us, all the trouble, all the joys, all the different experiences, and so as we come together tonight, we pray that you would give us uh, clear thinking and that you would allow us to hear your spirit as he speaks to us and teaches us and grows us through the teaching of your Son, Jesus Christ. And uh, so as we open your word, we pray that you would quicken our understanding and uh, do with us as you will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, how many of you did the homework I gave you last week? (laughs) Well, not to worry, I did it, so I'll walk you through it. Does anybody remember that I gave you homework last week? I'm not going to ask you if anybody cares that I gave you homework last week. Here's what I want us to do. Um, I want to go back and deal with that in case you did try to work through some of it. I assigned for you, growing out of the parables we did last week, I assigned Matthew 13:52. So let's go there and let's apply some of the things that we laid out last week, some principles of studying parables, and uh, let's see how we come to this particular parable, all right? Matthew thirteen fifty three reads this way. Actually, I'm going to, did I say 53? 52 is right, sorry. So I'll back up to 51. Jesus says, have you understood all these things? And his know everything disciples said, yes. Okay, now that's not the way it reads. They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So how do we get to Jesus' intended meaning? All right. Okay, context is important. Actually, last week... I gave you four different levels of context that is important, right? Let's back it up even a little bit more and let's follow Craig Blomberg's approach in dealing with parables. And that is that the number of main characters in the parable give us some idea of how many points that the parable seeks to make. So how many main characters do we have in that parable? Which one? Just that verse 52. It's the latter part of verse 52. He says, every scribe has been trained for the kingdom, or who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like, okay, this is where the parable starts, is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. 
Actually, we're pushing the definition of a parable here. That's another discussion, but uh, let's take it as such. One, one main character. So what's the main point? And the answer is, it depends. <laughs> or does it? All right, so what is the word context? That's where we were last week. That's why I gave you this homework, because I think it makes the point that we're driving at in a pretty short, easy parable. What's, what's context mean? Okay, let's, let's amplify the events of the time. Jesus told this parable to a particular group of people at a particular point in time for a particular reason. And they would have understood it in a particular way, probably. All right? That's just general when you come to Scripture. That's, that's, you come with that. So part of what we need is to understand, okay, so what was that context? What was going on there? How might they have heard this? All right? So the context matters here as we decide what's the one point. But what is the context of this passage? Now, there's a, there's a word that kind of jumps out at me as we do this. One of the things I would say, every once in a while I'll try to throw these tools out for you, these little things to hang on to. When you do scripture study, pay attention to the verbs. All right? A verb is an action word, right? It explains. Did some of you just revert back to your middle school days and just, <laughs> just like, no, don't. Okay? Verbs matter, especially in scripture. So the verb in this particular parable is like a master of a house who does what? And here's the verb, who brings out. But if we go back up a little bit more, there's another verb there. Therefore, every scribe, and what's that verb? Who has been, what does it say, instructed? Mine says trained. Anybody have something different? Who has become a disciple. That's probably a more literal word-for-word translation because the word that's used there is the word disciple. So who has been discipled might be a way to say that. Who's Jesus talking about there? Now the nouns matter. Sorry, I'm really not trying to just get down in the weeds with you here. Stay with me for a minute, okay? Who was a scribe? What did they do? Teacher of the law. You know that in Jesus' dealings with the religious leaders of his day, the scribes are one of the groups he had real problems with. Okay? They're the ones who copy the law. They, because they spent time copying the law, they knew the law, and they were the teachers much of the time. And so the scribe here that he's talking about has to do with the context. What's the context of this particular parable? Actually, you have to go all the way back to the first part of chapter 12. So go back to chapter 12 and just glance through the first half of that chapter and see if you can tell me what's going on there. Okay, who's they? Jesus and his disciples, right? And the scribes and the Pharisees loved them for it, right? (laughs) Wrong. There's a contention here. So you go back to chapter 12 and you work your way through some of those stories there, especially in the first part of it, and you find that there is this escalation of tension between Jesus, his disciples, and the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. So it's into that mix that Jesus begins telling some of these parables. Last week, we looked at the 
the parable of the pearl of great price, right? And the treasure hidden in the field. And so this one now comes in. Here's the significant context here. This is the final parable in the section that Jesus is telling that is a response to the opposition of these scribes and Pharisees. So in other words, they're opposed to him. Jesus begins to teach his disciples in parables, and that teaching has something to do with those scribes and Pharisees who are outside of God's plan and what he intended. So in this parable, and we'll give you my point of reference, I guess. Well, actually, there's another piece that we need to go to. Somebody go and read Matthew 5, 17, and also verse 20. Matthew 5, 17, and 20. Okay, did you catch that last part? All the way back to Matthew 5. And we're in Matthew 13 here. From the outset, Jesus draws a line in the sand and says, you got to do better than that. Okay? The problem is, you have to do better than that was talking about a, a bunch of people who were the religious leaders, the religious intelligentsia of the day. And Jesus says, that's not going to cut it. Well, no wonder they were against him. Right? Especially when he started doing things that was contrary to what they taught. And so, there's this tension And if you'll recognize that that tension is there with Jesus and these scribes and Pharisees as you read through the Gospels, a lot of it begins to make sense as to some of the the cryptic way, slant in this case, that Jesus tells some of these parables. Because if he had hit them between the eyes with it, it just would have been another brick in the wall for them. They wouldn't have heard the truth of it. Okay? So, with that in mind, here's two principles I think we draw from this. By the way, I think that the point that Jesus is making here is that if a scribe who has been trained in his profession in the first century, if he embraces Jesus and the kingdom of God as Jesus teaches it, he is one who, and now we get to the parable, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. In other words, he's able to see the fulfillment of the kingdom of God as promised in the Old Testament. He's able to see it in Jesus. Okay, And Jesus says that's a rare deal. All right, so two principles I would give you from that. Here's the first one. Don't abandon the Old Testament uh, and just be exclusively New Testament. I think, I think it's important that we get that. One of the things I try to do in balancing what I teach between Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night is I try to make sure that we have a healthy balance of Old Testament and New Testament. I learned that when I was in college. I told you... If you were here on Wednesday night, I told you about this professor that I had who was, oh, he was tough. He was really tough. Uh, And he was my Old Testament professor. And um, I I just assumed, because he knew, I mean, we played just how how smart this guy was, what he knew of the Old Testament. We, for for a ministerial student's Christmas party, we went to one of the professor's homes and we played Bible trivia. And Dr. Johnson was his own team. <laughs> and he just killed us. I mean, Bible trivia, there's some, there's some trivia in the Old Testament. Okay? For his class, I had to memorize all of the kings of the Old Testament in order. He was mean. <laughs> but he knew stuff. I mean, he would know the names of slaves of people in some of those passages that we don't read very often. He never missed a question. All right? 
So in other words, I came out of that experience with him believing that he was this incredible Old Testament scholar and spent his life studying the Old Testament. And then one day I was sitting in his office talking to him and I said, so what's your PhD in? And he told me, and it was a New Testament thing. He's like a Greek scholar. I said, well, how do you do all this Old Testament stuff? He said, let me tell you, Mark. He said, you're not ready to study the New Testament until you're familiar with the Old Testament. All right? Now, I'm not going to argue his point necessarily. I'm always going to take people straight to Jesus if I get a chance to do it. But as a student of Scripture, the principle I'm trying to lay out here is that you need to be thoroughly conversant with the Old Testament because it informs the New Testament. I think that's part of what Jesus is saying here. The, this scribe would have been well-versed in Old Testament stuff, but he was totally missing. These group of scribes were totally missing God's anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus himself. They couldn't see. So be careful that you don't abandon the Old Testament. Secondly, here's another principle out of that. Uh, kingdom truth is still alive and observable. Jesus, in dealing with those scribes, just laid the truth out. And it was there for them to see. And if it was, it was there for them to catch if they would only do it. All right, there's your homework assignment. I'm, I'm just exhausted after doing your homework for you. So <laughs> let's go to uh, our discussion about this morning. All right. Now, I'm going to be careful here. Uh, I don't want to in any way re-preach the sermon. And I don't want you to have to sit in on an unpacking of every piece of the sermon and why I did what I did and all that kind of stuff, all right? It's bad enough you had to sit through it once. You shouldn't have to sit through it twice. But I do want to give you tools for your own study of parables. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put some things that we did this morning and try to draw some principles and amplify some of the principles we've already talked about in here so that you can study for yourself some of these things. So I started off... Having said that, I do want to kind of go to the introduction for a minute. How did I start off that sermon this morning? All right. Did a history lesson. Looking back, what was the, what was the thrust of that, the premise? Okay, that's right. So that event was a trigger for a movement or some significant change in the landscape. All right. So I took that and I went another step with it. Okay. Actually, I went to the Jesus event. Remember that? The incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus was one of those triggers, right? But not on a national scale, on an eternal scale, all right? Now, this is one of those places that I want to try to get you into my head, all right? It is a scary place, I'll just tell you. <laughs> Why did I do that? Why did I try to talk backwards in American history to get to the point of Jesus and his coming? To set the context, that's, that's perfect. Because it, what I did is in the closing part of that, I went back to Mark 1.15. Right? What does Mark 1.15 say? All right, that's that trigger event. So I tried to lay out the context of these two parables in the introduction of the sermon today. And I did that so that it would be done... And we could talk about what the parables were teaching and what the application was. All right? So Jesus, in that opening salvo of his public ministry, said, The kingdom of heaven has come. 
that's the trigger event, right? I talked about the Jesus event, the incarnation, and it went all the way through his life and his passion and those things. Now, the reason I started there is to get that context out on the table. Last week we talked about four different pieces of context. And in this particular case, that one introduction at the beginning of the sermon laid the context for the whole sermon. All right? Now, with that in mind, we took, here's the principle I want you to get. Sometimes, oh, let me stop. The parable is in Mark 4, but we took the context from Mark 1. Here's a principle for you. Sometimes you have to look backwards a pretty good ways to figure out what the context exactly is. We did that with that homework assignment from last week. We were in Matthew 13, but the real context for that starts in the first part of chapter 12, and Jesus lays the foundation all the way back in Matthew 5. Okay? So without this becoming laborsome for you, here's a good way to deal with it. If you're going to study the parables... Start at the beginning of the gospel that you're reading them in and read it uh, in as much of a one setting as you can to get the big flow of it all, all right? Sometimes we talk about the 33,000-foot view of things or the 30,000-foot view of things. So, so sometimes we can, in our Bible study, we get so down in the weeds on stuff, like I was just doing with your homework assignment, that we lose the context. And Jesus tells these parables to a particular group of people at a particular point in time for a particular reason, and we have to figure out what that is as we lay into it, all right? So sometimes you have to look way back for the context. I had a um, class in seminary. It was actually one of my last classes before I graduated, and it was over the book of Acts. It was taught by my Greek professor, now, that's a bigger story because my first Greek professor died in the Christmas break. It's a two-semester class. Had him for the first part. It was his textbook we were using that he wrote. He died in the Christmas break, and so we had his graduate assistant in the second half of Greek. And his graduate assistant was trying to get his Ph.D. He was mean, and he was tough, tough. And so for some reason, I took him later for the book of Acts, And one of the assignments that we had in the book of Acts was not a research paper, but it was to outline the book of Acts. Could you do that? The answer is sure you could. Get your study Bible. It's all in the beginning part of it. It lays it out for you, right? But Dr. Trimble wasn't interested in what the study Bible said. Here's the way he gave us the assignment. I want you to do a detailed outline of the book of Acts. You must account... For every verse, specifically. I I wanted to drop the class, but I needed it to graduate. So then he said, here was my out. He said, now, some of you I've had for Greek, and so if you would rather do a Greek exegesis paper out of the book of Acts, he said, I would consider that. And so I ran up to him after class, and I said, I would really like to do a Greek exegesis paper. He gave us an example of his expanded outline, and it was over 20 pages, single-spaced. Here's what I learned from that. Even though I didn't do that assignment, I did a different one. I learned from that that the best way to figure out context is to read with details in mind. So pay attention 
as you read through these various passages, especially the parables, because our tendency, and I'm preaching them this way, so I'm giving you a warning. I'm taking them individually, or like today where I took two, right? But you cannot just go in and grab one of them and make it say what you want to say. It was given in a context, and good, responsible Bible handling says you have to figure out what the context is. Okay, enough of that. Let's move on. So how many main characters, well, we, ought, we should read it, right? So verses 26 through 29, uh, Mark chapter 4. Somebody read those verses if you would, please. Okay, thank you. So how many main characters are there in this parable? So I hear one. You might want to raise it to two. At least two. Okay. Here's a principle for you. In the parables... Main characters don't have to be people. All right? So there's two in this one. Most, most Bible scholars would tell us that there are two in this one. Who might they be? The farmer or the sower and the seed. Okay? So let's take and do something with that. Let me take you back to our discussion on subheadings before. How does your Bible give a subheading to this parable? The parable of the growing seed. Somebody else have a different subheading? The seed growing gradually. All right, the parable of the growing seed. The parable of the seed growing gradually. All right, unconscious growth. Anything else? Four soils, okay. Anybody have a subheading that says something about the farmer? The parable of the sower. Now, let's make sure that we're in verse 29. Uh, is that right? 26 through 29, right? Because, and I'll get to this in a minute, but there's a parable that Jesus tells before this that we're familiar with. We'll get to that one in a little bit. All right? So our discussions on the subheadings a couple of weeks ago centered at this basic point. That is... Well, let me just, I'll just quote what another guy says. This is Peter Ray Jones says this, naming a parable is tantamount to interpreting it. So in other words, the subheading, however you choose to subheading a parable, probably is going to grow out of your understanding of what that parable is teaching. All right? So if in the one before it, it says the parable of the sower, then that means that your focus is on the one doing the sowing. If it says the parable of the soils, then that means you're focusing on the different types of soil that the seed fell on, right? So in this particular one, again, my translation says uh, the parable of the seed growing. Here's what different commentators have said. The parable of the patient husbandman. Why would they say that? Okay. Does that bear out in the parable itself? Everybody go like this? It does? All right. Is that Jesus' main point? Don't answer that. Okay. I like that. One of my favorite preachers said something like that just this morning, as a matter of fact. All right. We'll come back to that in a minute. So here's another. Another guy says the parable of the seed growing secretly. Another one, this is interesting, another one guy says, the parable of the earth producing of itself. Now, are any or all of those okay? Do they come out of the parable? 
So which one's right? Because those are almost mutually exclusive. So when I ask which one's right, I'm really asking you, what did Jesus mean? What was his intent with this particular parable? And instead of re-preaching the thing for you, let me just ask you, how did I preach it? Okay. All right. So two, let, let me build off of that. All right. Two different parables. And I took one point for each parable. Did you catch that? All right. But we just said that this parable has two main characters. And if we follow Blomberg's approach, then that means it would have two different points. So how could I get by with just preaching one of the two meanings or one of the two points of this parable? And the answer is, I was the one putting the sermon together. (laughs) No, actually, I chose to do that on purpose, all right? It is a two-point parable, but I preached one of the points. Actually, that's not exactly right. uh, Because in the conclusion of both services, I quickly pulled in the second point as part of the conclusion, all right? We'll get to that in just a second. But part of it for me was there was a time bind that I have getting up there to preach two different points. It took me half of the sermon to preach one of the points, and we had a second parable to go to. So I chose to put those two together. Now, the reason I did that, this goes to another thing we just mentioned last week, and I want to spend a little bit of time here tonight. When you come to deal with these parables, one of the context points that you look for is what's around it, the grouping of parables. So look quickly at Mark chapter 4. How many parables does Jesus tell? What do they have in common? Okay, so you have the parable of the seed growing. I'm I'm reading my headings here. The parable of the mustard seed. What? The parable of the lamp. Is that all? The parable of the sower. So what of those, how many did we just mention? Four? Four? Three of them have one thing in common as it relates to what's in the parable. What is that? What are they? Deal with the seed, right? The sower sows the word. This is Jesus explaining the parable of the soils, as we would say. So there's a seed that's part of that. We get to the parable of the seed growing and then the parable of the mustard seed. Three of those four that are lumped in together here. Deal with the seed. That's a clue. When you come to study these parables, you need to see what's going on around it because Jesus is grouping them, or at least Mark is, in the way he pulls them together. I happen to believe that Jesus told them pretty much in sequence, even though some scholars are not too sure about that, because they come and they, as a unit, they push some central truths about the kingdom of God that are visible in the seed. That's one of the reasons I said this morning that it's possible that they may have been walking through the countryside and see this farmer out there sowing seed. And Jesus immediately goes to some of those principles of kingdom growth that are triggered by what he sees. I I did this when I was backpacking. I used to take teenagers backpacking a lot. And uh, so as I was walking along with them, I was trying to pay attention to what was going on around me. and, and I started seeing in nature, it's like, it's like God just dropped a veil on, <laughs> and I could see these spiritual truths. For instance, I was with a group 
uh, up in Cloudcroft at Civil's Baptist Encampment when I was a youth minister in, in Hobbs. And that's the New Mexico, one of the two New Mexico State Baptist camps. And so I took these kids backpacking up there. And as we were walking through the back part of the countryside early part of the summer, I noticed that the trees, the evergreen trees that were up there, they were two-toned green. And about an inch or two on the end of most of the branches was a bright green, and then everything else was a darker green. You know why that's the case? It's new growth, right? So I could have used that example this morning, talking about stretch marks. That's the next parable, by the way. Um, But here's what I want you to get. God's truth is all over the place around us. It's everywhere. And so if we ask him, he'll train our minds and our eyes to see things that are out there that have spiritual application for us. And it grows us. That's part of the kingdom growing thing, right? So Jesus likely, if not this time, then at some points, as he walked through the countryside, he saw those kind of things, and he stopped enough to say to his disciples, here's a lesson for you. And I suspect that a lot of the times his disciples were like I tend to be, which is a little dense about stuff like that. And then God says, no, you're missing it. So you know, he kind of spells it out for me a little bit better. Grouping parables is a good way to kind of drill down on what Jesus is trying to get across. Three different parables here dealing with seed. Each of them makes a little bit different point. But it's all around the kingdom of God and its growth. What soils are conducive to growth? And then what's the deal when it looks like, you know, I said this a couple of times this morning in both services, I think. I tried to. When it looks like God's on break, we can't really see what's going on around us. We can't really trace his hand in that. Like, oh, I don't know, maybe a New York law this week. And it causes us to wonder God, are you really still at work? Then we have a parable like this where he says, growth is certain. The kingdom of God's growth is certain. You don't have to wonder about that. That's drawn largely from the context of the whole thing for us here. All right? So here's the principle. Don't forget to check the arrangement of the group and how that parable fits the group. Okay, there may be a bigger point than just what you see there when you pull them all together. All right? Any questions or comments? We're through the introduction. Let's go through the... No, I'm just... All right, so the first point of the message was the, the kingdom of God's growth is certain. You know, sometimes, uh, and some scholars look at this, and they make a big deal about the lack of activity by the farmer. Now, does Jesus emphasize the lack of activity? So that's a good thing, a good principle to look at too. Okay? Don't, don't try to make it say something that's not really the focal point of it. If you were going to do anything relative to the farmer, and, and he is one of the two main characters here, so part of what you could lean on is the fact that he doesn't understand how this works. Did you catch that in that verse? So that might be a better way to look at it than just emphasizing that he doesn't have to do anything. He does. And, and really what I have in my notes here is 
who of us have ever been around farmers who didn't do anything from the time they planted it until the time they harvested it? All right? So Jesus doesn't really emphasize that. And the fact that he doesn't emphasize is probably a good reason that we should not emphasize the lack of activity there. Okay? Because there's enough other things that he does say there that causes us to go, okay, so the farmer doesn't understand it. Jesus is clear about that. He doesn't really understand how this whole seed thing works, but he knows when it's ready to harvest, and so he goes after it. Um, I think really, and I tried to lean on this this morning too, look for key words in these parables. This morning I leaned on one, and I talked about how we just pulled it out of Greek straight into English. Right? The word is automate. Where do you find that in this parable? Verse, yeah, verse 28. The earth produces by itself automatically. Well, actually, the word really in Greek means more by design. It, it does what it's supposed to do by design. The kingdom of God, because God designed it to grow, certainly, is on the move. How we respond to that comes much along the lines of what this farmer does without of it. I use that to emphasize that it doesn't need human intervention, but we are blessed by God to be allowed to partner with him in the process. Okay. So what I'd like to do, there's one other element to, to this parable thing that I'd like to throw out. I'm going to try to do it very quickly and we'll be done. Um, and this ties to the whole slant thing. This really comes from Martin Luther. And before you, you know, stone me for quoting a Catholic Lutheran scholar, uh, Martin Luther uh, triggered some things that we hold really true as Baptists and evangelicals. And he talks about the way of God at one point and the difference between right-handed and left-handed power. So I'm going to try to take his deep discussion and just pull it down to this. Right-handed power, according to the way of the world, is the kind that hits you between the eyes. All right? most, you know, most of us, I think, statistically speaking, are right-handed. And so if we were to get in some kind of a fight, uh, I'm going to probably pay more attention to your right hand coming at me than your left hand because most people's left hand is weak or weaker than right hand. That's the basic idea of the, of the metaphor he's using here. And so in the way of the world, right-handed power is that kind that is applied directly and forcefully with my kids, all right? My kids knew that I did not mind exercising right-handed power. Typically, I say, wait a minute, this is going to be on the Internet, so I might or might not have used a belt with my kids. Um, but it doesn't have to be that kind of beating kind of thing, although sometimes it is that. Sometimes it's just that direct kind of in your face. And so more than one time I had discussions with my kids about how they were behaving and I let them know in no uncertain terms that living in my house was a privilege, not a right. That's right-handed power, to go right straight at it and there's no question about where the power lies. Left-handed power, according to Luther, 
was really a less direct kind of a way. In other words, it, it catches the other person off guard, but it's still power. And his classic example really is, or his point of that, is really the cross. Okay? Because God deals with sin, and there are many places throughout Scripture. You go to the Old Testament, and God using what Luther would call right-handed power is the flood. The sin of man, and God steps in, and in no uncertain terms, I'm in charge, it's my way, and this is the way we're going to deal with it. Okay? But then he comes back in, according to Luther, and God says later, when it comes to dealing with the penalty of sin, he crucifies his son on a cross. The least likely picture of asserting authority and power is to give it up and die on a cross. Right-handed versus left-handed power. And yet, according to Luther again now, that left-handed power has a resonance to it that wins the heart as opposed to right-handed power which shrinks back or just is defiant. So when you come to study parables, I've used the word slanted throughout this series and will continue to do that. But every once in a while you'll find Jesus coming in not with the right-handed cross, but the left-handed on the side not expecting that kind of power where God shows himself. And so in this particular case, on this particular parable, where we see a seed that for no apparent reason other than God's own design with that, it leads us to a point of recognizing that there is a judgment at the end of it all. That's the second point of this. That's the point that we get to that I referred to Joel, where at the end of it all, there is the sickle that comes to the harvest. Okay, Just so that you know, the sickle, that's right-handed power. Okay, That is in your face, everything changes here. But getting to that point is the left-handed part. It's the slant that Jesus comes to and says, the kingdom of God is certain to grow. It is always doing that, whether you can see it or not, according to the way he talks about the farmer here, whether you understand it or not. It's always moving to its appointed end. And its appointed end is a judgment taken from Joel 3. And then we come to the New Testament as I did. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Okay, That part of the parable, I rather suspect lit the scribes up. If they got it at all, that's the part that would have gotten them. Okay? All right, so now we tackle the next parable. No, we're done. Let's pray. Let's pray and we'll let you go. So, Father, we thank you again for your word. We pray that you would help us to be good students of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week... It's Super Bowl week. I know that many of your classes are having parties and all. We will have this study to, uh, next week. It will only be 30 minutes long, okay? I think that will get you where you don't have to miss much of the game. It will be about halftime. And uh, so if you are not planning on watching the game, we'll still have Bible study next week, okay? Thank you.